Hello everyone, it's April 11th, 2023. So last week there was a Centaur 5 pressurization test anomaly. The upper stage exploded, or some of it did, or maybe it was the test stand, hard to say. There was also a video leaked, or maybe just posted. It's all up in the air at the moment. So let's get the show off the pad too, and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 404 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So last week, uh, people in the chat will remember this if they were here last week and everyone else will not. We talked about there were some taekwonauts on board Tian Gong who did an unscheduled EVA. Well, unannounced anyway. An unannounced EVA. And we had talked about how it was to take out garbage. But people listening will realize that that wasn't in last week's episode because as far as I could find out, or as far as I could tell, that was not a real event. I think that was an April Fool's <laughs> message. Now, if really? anyone knows otherwise, let me know. But I could not find any reference to that except for that one tweet. So I'm starting to wonder well, that, that I mean, maybe that, it wasn't that make, real. That makes sense. I mean, if it's just – it's it's China. There's very often just like one person who like knows enough and opens their mouth mm-hmm. and like says something about – says something particular that, you know, we didn't hear from the state. Yeah, but I couldn't even find anyone talking about that. It, it was literally just that tweet. And then there were, you know, there were responses to the tweet that were all, you know, kind of like funny. This is April Fool's or whatever. But I couldn't find any, like, other discussion about it. But I'm – so I'm still wondering, did that actually happen? <laughs> it was perfectly reasonable though. I mean, like, that's right. a totally normal – No, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> if that if that's if that's a April Fool's joke, it's, a, it's not a great one. <laughs> I guess I just got a little bit um, – Suspicious. Suspicious, yeah. yeah. So I'm still wondering if it actually happened. I guess it did, but it's just odd that there's just no reference to it besides a tweet. But I'm, but I'm going to keep it in this time. So apparently, yeah, um, according to – uh, your best reckoning. This is something that actually happened. They took out the garbage. They opened up a hatch and they threw some garbage outside, like literally trash bags, out into space. Uh, and that's how they got rid of uh, their refuse. No, I agree. We like it was a, it was a whole fun like segment describing it and talking about it, just the three of us. And then at the end, I was kind of like. Yeah, wait a second. Some people are saying April Fools, <laughs> and then I got very yeah. uh, uh, suspicious and nervous as well about <laughs> the validity of it. But, but I think, yeah, I mean, to, to Ben's point, um, you know, China and Asia's uh, spaceflight is a great Twitter account for a lot of uh, uh, Chinese space stuff, and sometimes it might just be a sole source of something, especially if it's not a launch or anything, but like a reason why EVAs were unannounced on their space station. You know, like it might be the only reporting we could hope for on it. <laughs> Let's read from them. But but it would be nice to be able to confirm it because like I said, I, I, I'm with you in terms of growing suspicious <laughs> once I started seeing potentially just people trolling and saying, April Fool, haha. Yeah. Should tweet at them. <laughs> Did this actually happen or is this April yeah. Fool? <laughs> Serious people want to know. Centaur explosion. This happened before we recorded last week, but we didn't talk about it. I don't. I think maybe because there just wasn't any information on it. I mean, I'm sure that there was very little to maybe even nothing at the time. It had happened what the day before, perhaps. Uh, it was the Wednesday before. Oh no, the Wednesday. Recording. Yeah. So it was actually. But it, yeah. So it was actually a couple of days. Yeah, but I think it was just limited to to Twitter um, and Tori Bruno and 
uh, there hadn't been any articles written on it or anything. Yeah. But unlike bags of garbage, we have good confirmation <laughs> that this actually did happen, not just Twitter at this point, right? <laughs> Photo evidence. Yeah. So what did happen? This, this occurred at the Marshall Space Flight Center. There seems to have been an upper stage issue and it basically exploded in a big mushroom cloud, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, it was described as a column of burning hydrogen. And when you when you hear mushroom cloud, you think like, puff of smoke and this really it's it's not a puff of smoke like it is orange flames curling up into the air um and and the only reason that we know exactly what it looks like is because uh, images were captured on a security camera nearby so this test specifically was for the the vulcan upper stage which is called the centaur 5 a improvement right? it is centaur uh, 5 not centaur v right just yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> down by <myself>. okay <laughs> the the centaur 4 uh so, somehow slipped through the cracks during development because the Centaur 3 is what flies on a Atlas V uh, currently. But yeah, so uh, this was a pressurization test of the Centaur 5, which is a really big, chunky, impressive um, stage. And I don't know if we have any images of the stage itself, but a really cool uh, infographic that Tori Bruno had shared uh, months ago. And um, specifically, they had uh, liquid hydrogen in the fuel tank. And then uh, in the oxidizer tank, uh, which uh, the two share a common bulkhead uh, in, in the stage, uh, was liquid nitrogen, which I didn't know. Uh, it turns out liquid nitrogen actually, you know, they, they, it cools they cool it to a lower temperature than even liquid oxygen. And so if anything else, then your pressurization tests are conservative on the oxidizer mm -hmm. side. And so it's not so much to just be a stand-in while you're testing the fuel only in this case, but you actually can, I guess, test both of them. And so it was a very extreme test, apparently, and there were no engines on there. Uh, Tori Bruno was replying a lot. Um, on Twitter to uh, Eric Berger's article on this uh, on this explosion. And so uh, there was a lot of cool information you can glean about the particulars of the test without, of course, him going into too much detail. But yeah, there was a there was a very big uh, explosion. <laughs> and yeah. uh, the, the fact that there wasn't liquid oxygen means that this really wasn't that big of an explosion. Like th this was more like an overpressure um, that you know, then caught fire, which is why you actually see fire, right? <laughs> and not just like a shock wave. Yeah, time, yeah, time to our, uh, we've been talking about rotating uh, detonation engines recently, <laughs> right? This was a deflagration, not a detonation. Yeah. Um, happened. Yeah. Or even, even maybe a conflagration because it, it might have just been an overpressure event. Right. Okay. So the photo that we have is like really kind of beautiful. Um, just of it looks almost like lava splashing upwards it's really it's pretty cool but the the image is from a security camera video well the security camera was not on ula's property i mean i guess it's it's or it's a, a marshall space flight center it's not their property anyway they're you know leasing it but it, it wasn't from their facilities it was actually next door at blue origin uh they're about a hundred meters away and Dennis you kind of you kind of got stuck into figuring out exactly where these buildings are uh, on Google mm. Maps right and I think you did a pretty good job you want to talk about thank it? you yeah no I, th I just I really wanted to get a picture of uh, exactly where this explosion had happened because when you look at the still from blues uh, security camera there's a lot of trees that are I mean obscuring the source of the uh, explosion but also you know kind of almost everything in the foreground. And so um, 
uh, yeah, using Google Maps and their 3D, you know, uh, being able to kind of pan down and look at it from different angles, you can kind of see that um, there's there's in the still there's a large test stand on the right, and that's the one that Blue Origin is refurbishing for their engines. And then hidden behind those trees, there's these two structures that have just they just look like a ton of scaffolding, and presumably either within them or adjacent to them or however it's set up, but that seems to be where the explosion itself happened. And so I'm assuming that that's where uh, ULA is testing their, you know, their upper stage centaurs and putting them through very rigorous uh, or very extreme tests uh, by their uh, description. But, um, but yeah, cause that was another thing that I found when I went into this little bunny hole is that it's, it's it was challenging to find like an up-to-date map of where all the test stands are at the you know the 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 Redstone Range side of Marshall uh, Space Flight Center and uh, be able to see like you know this company's here that company's there etc. And the fact that I think what made it a little challenging too is that there's been some changes between the Google yeah. image and the still just because of you know Blue yeah. doing their work on it. Yeah. Right. So there's the the big uh, rocket test stand and that's not where this happened. It's off to the to the south i guess and so mm-hmm. there's um a little there's a shed that's like just southeast, um and then almost directly south there are two big test stands i'm assuming it was those two big test stands where this happened right is that, yeah, is that exactly. kind of the conclusion you came to so they're like uh-huh. big scaffoldy and, kind of test stands yep and one of them has a very circular looking uh, aperture for you to possibly slide an upper stage <laughs> centaur in nice and comfortably or put the tanks there for sure. Uh, okay. So we'll, we'll put um, a link in the show notes of Dennis's um, Google maps uh, forensics. There's uh, an angle that just is just about perfect, uh, just about a perfect match for the image that we have. So we said that this was a video and that we have a still uh, and it's like, well, what gives? Why can't we see the video? So the thing is, the video wasn't released publicly, and somehow the, this one image was was released without getting like a, an official okay, I guess. And uh, ULA actually asked Blue Origin to remove or to secure the video on their servers, um, which they did. Um, somebody on Twitter accused Tori of being super shady for doing this, and they're like you know, how can you, how can you say that somebody needs to go delete this? Like, what are you trying to hide? Like I, th- I had so much faith in you. And his reply, I believe was just didn't happen. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so he, he says, we never asked for them to delete it. Um, I think it's totally fair for them to ask to just not have it be on their, you know, company wide servers. Uh, but either way we didn't get the video, but we did get a photo and uh, it's pretty cool. So it, the photo has this big uh, fiery fireball and uh, there is actually a pretty good amount of debris in it. And Tori uh, tweeted uh, that most of what you're seeing is insulation and smaller bits from the test rig. One piece of the hydrogen tanks dome about a foot square ended up a few feet away. The test article is still inside the rig and largely intact, which will significantly help with the investigation. So largely intact makes me think that this might not even have been uh, an overpressure inside Centaur. It sounds like it might have been their rig couldn't handle the pressure, which is pretty cool considering that the rig is not the one flying to space. That's an interesting interpretation. 
which makes sense. Well, and also you'll notice that Tori said inside the rig, which makes that circular structure seem mm-hmm. even more likely. So <laughs> double good job. So like with the with the video going around, there's always, you know, like this shady uh, suspicion of companies hiding things. But actually, we first heard about this um, from people in the area who reported a fireball. But pretty quickly thereafter, uh, Toy Bruno tweeted and said, uh, keeping you posted during qual testing of Centaur 5 structural article at MSFC, the hardware experienced an anomaly. This is why we thoroughly and rigorously exercise every possible condition on the ground before flight. Investigation is underway. Vulcan will fly when complete. And then I think that one sentence, Vulcan will fly when complete, uh, prompted Eric Berger to do some speculation uh, on the Ars Technica article, where he said um, that the fact that ULA was still doing qualification tests of the Centaur upper stage suggests that it was also a pacing item for the new launch vehicle. So kind of like a, a choke point for the schedule, which, you know, is is fairly reasonable. Berger points out that uh, Centaur 5 does have a lot of heritage. It's not a brand new vehicle, but it also has a, a lot of new components. The specs that we know so far is that it is supposed to have a 40% longer life on orbit and 2.5 times the Delta V of the current Centaur 3. And these significant changes do suggest that this could be uh, a choke point in the schedule. Interestingly enough, uh, Tori also said on Twitter that it's very unlikely, like, quote, very unlikely, um, that any changes that they have to make from this uh, incident will affect the current Centaur, um, mm. which makes a lot of sense, right? If this is, if this is a, it has heritage, it's a descendant, but it's not. You know, it's not the same vehicle. It's got a lot of new parts. You know, if there's 50% new parts, you'd expect issues to crop up more often in the new parts. And you would expect, even if there's an even distribution of issues, that, you know, there's a 50% chance they're going to be in the new parts. So who knows what those numbers actually are? But yeah, it, it really does make a lot of sense that this is an issue that isn't going to affect Centaur 3 because of all these new changes. Now, now what do you think about the Centaur 5 that's sitting in Florida or whatever, that's going to be part of the, I don't know exactly where it is now, but like, great question. Be part of the certification one launch. Great question. Don't know. I mean, like, like I said, I think this kind of sounds like it might just be the test equipment failing, not the Centaur. The, the common dome had a, a square foot section go flying out. So like, obviously there was damage, but if most of the debris flying is insulation from the test rig, I don't know. Like, it seems fairly reasonable that this might have very little to do with the stage itself. Um, and even if it is exactly the stage's fault here, they were probably testing, uh, you know, like destruction testing to uh-huh. see exactly how far they could push the thing, which is something that you would see them do anyway. Um, and it's, it's a good thing to do. And it, you know, the inevitable explosion isn't necessarily an issue maybe it means that their safety margins aren't as wide as they expected uh maybe it means that their safety margins are insufficient but we don't really know at this point yeah well i mean didn't tori bruno say that there was an anomaly which to me would suggest that it wasn't supposed to happen yeah i agree yeah as you say that he also did point out that this one this tank has gone through more like extreme tests uh than than any one individual tank would realistically go through you know, like they would they would try to maximize one particular type of stress or situation on it uh, 
one at a time and control for the other variables. And yeah. so just, it could just be the, you know, going through, uh, through that much abuse over time, it just needed to finally gave way in a way that you wouldn't expect a flight Centaur five to ever have to go through. Well, and Hey, you know, this is, this is supposed to be a much longer lived vehicle. It, mm. It'd be pretty cool if they were burst bursting through like some, I don't know, the word I'm looking for is like glass ceiling, but something that is like rocket flavored, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> uh, the methane ceiling, uh, the Carolock ceiling, the Carmen line, <laughs> I mean, literally, <laughs> but it'd be really cool. Yeah. If they, if they moved into a new regime where like, now you have to deal with like all the weird things that happen on ISS as parts just have been in space longer than we ever have put things in space before. You know, it's just like this new this this new region of on orbit life I, like I, I don't know if that's happening i'm just saying it, it'd be pretty cool and, hmm. and that's it'd be cool if that's why they experience this because they're testing for those much longer you know more more duty cycles more um more mm-hmm. time more stress accumulating yeah i was reading uh on that how they the idea for how you could extend the mission uh, uh or the mission extension kit or whatever it's called where you could uh extend the life of the of a cryogenic upper stage is to basically use the the boil off as the propellant if i've read that correctly which i don't know how that works exactly but essentially you capture that boil off and that is what you would then combust which to me almost sounds like well that's just capturing boil off in the first like why not just do that and then <laughs> feed it back into the the tanks well i mean the thing is if you don't need it then what do you do cuz it's just mm. going to like you know what I mean? Like yeah, accumulates somewhere. Do you know if the if that's maybe part of the integrated integrated propellants? Like the RCS thrusters use gaseous oxygen and nitrogen, and so they can you know depressurize the tank a little bit. Use use some of that boil off. It, is that reasonable from what you read? Yeah. So yeah, my 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 impression and and Colin in the chat saying you can't pump boil off back into the tank, which. Thank you. I- oh, I see. To to operate the stage, I think that's their their uh, generators. I think they they have like basically a lawnmower engine that yeah <laughs> that mm. drives an alternator. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so you use the boil off to produce power, maintain attitude, keep the propellant tanks autogenously pressurized. I misunderstood. Yeah. If you're going to use it for propulsion, like there there are so many issues with that. Like, a you have to have an engine that can run on liquid and gaseous uh, propellants which seems really tough so maybe you have two engines um and then like you still have to store it and like like i mean that's exactly what you guys were saying was like well storage doesn't seem but yeah to to run generators it's pretty cool because like you're gonna have a fairly consistent boil off rate like it's it's gonna change over the life of the vehicle but not by that much and yeah i'm i'm pretty excited for their um for their lawnmower engine power system. It's pretty cool to <laughs> to take an internal combustion engine off of the earth and suddenly it's a, a really good idea. Like internal combustion engine, great idea on earth. It's a fantastic mechanism. But the propellants for it, you know, the fuel, not great. Um, and, you know, you have to operate in a gas uh, or in an in a oxygen atmosphere. But like you take it off the earth and like suddenly you're using it to to use up propellant that would otherwise be wasted like that's cool like <laughs> lawnmower engine in space all right so let's do four short and sweets this week 
Uh, ben, what's the first? All right, the Artemis 2 crew has been announced. The first crewed SLS mission now has an official crew list. Reed Weissman will command, Victor Glover will pilot, Christina Cook and Jeremy Hansen will mission specialize. The launcher hardware should be at KSC by the end of this year, with stacking operations to follow within four months. The A2 Orion is still under construction at Kennedy Space Center, but should be complete sometime next year. The flight has not yet been scheduled, but is forecast to begin no earlier than the end of December 2024. And then next up, Dawn Aerospace completes successful spaceplane test flight. Over a three-day span, Dawn Aerospace recently completed its first series of rocket-powered flights of its MK2 Aurora vehicle. Taking off from New Zealand's Glen Tanner Aerodrome, the test campaign initially had an issue with the scaled-down spaceplane's propellant system, but a simple engine swap fixed things. The MK2 was designed for customers as a suborbital vehicle, while a future version, the MK3, will be a two-stage spaceplane with an expandable second stage. And next up, ISRO completes successful spaceplane test flight. Days after the Aurora's campaign, ISRO successfully conducted a landing test for its reusable launch vehicle, or RLV. The prototype winged body was lifted to 4.5 kilometers by an Indian Air Force Chinook helicopter, where it was released and autonomously landed on a runway 4.6 kilometers downrange. This is the first vehicle to successfully fly and land after a captive release at that high an altitude, and will next attempt a re-entry from orbit, although the timeline of that mission is unknown. And fourthly, bathwater by any other name. Unnoticed by most, NASA released a new policy directive in December 2022, with instructions on how to pick names for major projects, spacecraft, and facilities. Following the James Webb controversy, individuals, and especially living individuals, will not be considered as namesakes. Instead, names should focus on themes of unity, inspiration, or accomplishments of those individuals. All right, so let's um, let's move on to this week in spaceflight history. We got just two winners. We have Delta V and Ryan Rigner, and the clue was storage on orbit. So this was a little play on my previous clue to this one, mm. which was it's in what we call a storage orbit. Right? Yeah. I think that's what the clue was. Yeah. Don't, don't worry. It's in a storage orbit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Don't worry. It's in a storage orbit. <laughs> but the event for this week uh, is on the 16th of April. It was the birthing of the BEAM module to ISS. So BEAM, which is the Bigelow Expandable Activities Module. What has it been now? I guess seven years? Seven years or so. Um, or no, exactly seven mm-hmm. years, right? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I was like seven years. Oh, yeah, but wait a minute. I've done that exact same thing. I'm like, wait, that's like to the day. Oh, right. Duh. You're like, wow, what a crazy coincidence. <laughs> I mean, what? so so what What actually are the odds? I guess they're one in seven, right? That'll be the exact day that we're recording this. But yeah, so um, the BEAM module, uh, yeah, this was launched on CRS-8, which uh, if anyone remembers CRS-7, the one before that, they that was a complete loss of vehicle. There was a delay because, um, like, obviously, uh, it needed to be figured out what had went wrong. So, yeah, the launch date, uh, which was on the 8th of April, that was uh, some months later. But once it had reached orbit, it was attached to the aft port of Tranquility for its quote-unquote two-year mission, which ended up being a whole lot longer. So the Dragon spacecraft had actually docked to the Harmony module, and then with Canadarm, it was moved to Tranquility. So beam, not particularly big, um, which is the whole idea. So the dimensions when stowed is uh, 2.16 meters by 2.36. And the 2.16 is actually the length. So it's actually shorter in length, like when it's in its, you know, like stowed configuration. Uh, and then when expanded, uh, it has a 4.01 meter by 3.23 meter 
length. And it has 16 cubic meters of internal volume and it weighs about 1,360 kilograms. So compact, then it gets a whole lot bigger. Uh, just to speak briefly about the layers, which I couldn't find like a lot of details because a lot of this is still proprietary, but you know, just to give a rough idea of how this thing's layered, because that is, I think, what maybe most people think about. Like, how do you make a, I don't know, like, a, I guess, as it were, a soft module? Mm -hmm. um, the layers go as follows. First, you start with the air barrier, and that's just to hold in the air. And then you have restraints, and that's what kind of like holds it structurally, like in a certain shape once it's inflated. And this is what I couldn't find. This is like probably the one thing I would like more information on. Couldn't find a whole lot. I don't know if it's a series of straps and so forth, like something that kind of helps it maintain that more or less. I guess like a bulbous tubular shape, mm. but uh, I'm guessing some kind of like a lattice perhaps. And then of course, there is always the micrometeoroid uh, and orbital debris layers uh, or meteorite, whichever. Um, there is uh, an external multi-layer insulation and that's um, you know just for thermal stability. And then there is uh, the beta cloth, which I actually don't remember ever using this term, even though I kind of know what it is, um, which is, so this is like what's on like everything in space. Um, it's a fine woven silica fiber. It's, it's kind of like fiberglass essentially. Mm. Um, and uh, this is what that white padding that you see on so many things in space. Um, and that includes spacesuits. Um, the interior of the shuttle, the cargo bay, um, if you ever look at the, or the shuttle bay, uh, if you ever look at the inside of that, that's basically all covered in beta cloth. So the stuff is used like all the time. So that's kind of what you're actually seeing, like when you look at it and, it ha and it's more or less like a white color, kind of looks like a, what, kind of like an armadillo sort of, kind of has those uh, little shingles, I suppose. Yeah. It's like, it's like scales. Yeah. Mm. It kind of has like a scaly armadillo or maybe more like a pangolin. <laughs> I'm, try I'm trying to think of the animal that it kind of resembles most. But uh, yeah, that's all just beta cloth. That's um, super it's interesting. Pretty, yeah. Pretty resistant to atomic oxygen, which we talked about last week, uh, how that can be a big problem. And just in case anyone is wondering, it was tested to eight times its operating pressure. So probably no risk of bursting because that maybe is maybe your first instinct when thinking about something like this, you know, like, mm -hmm. could you pop it? Uh, but it doesn't really work that way. Yeah. And so how the thing is inflated. So this is kind of interesting. And I don't think I knew this when we were initially talking about it, or maybe we did mention this and I had forgotten because this happened during, you know, the time that the shows existed. When inflated, you don't inflate the interior, but actually air is passed from the station into a series of bladders, which exist between the layers. And, you know, that's one of the layers uh, that makes up the thing. So the interior, the part that you would go into, that actually remains a vacuum. And at first it's a little bit counterintuitive because we're not used to things and, you know, how things in space work as far as pressure, but that's not a problem in space. You can just leave that a vacuum and it will inflate just fine because there's a vacuum outside as well. So it doesn't you know, make any difference. So you don't inflate the interior, you inflate the layers that make up the structure, which I thought was kind of neat. And originally they wanted to use tanks inside the beam module itself to, you know, inflate these bladders, but that was considered too risky. Um, so they decided to go with having the air pumped in from station in a very controlled fashion, because I guess they can regulate that better. But there were internal tanks that were used to pressurize the internal volume. But during their first attempt at inflation, which was back in May of 2016, so I mean, just about uh, a couple weeks prior, they were having issues. And I'm trying to recall, you know, what we were discussing, but this was so many years ago. I don't remember anymore. <laughs> but um, essentially what the problem was, was it wouldn't expand. And they're thinking that that was probably 
due to the fabric layers being stuck together uh, because it had spent so long in that compact uh, state because of the delay caused by CRS7. So it was, you know, all packed up and ready to go, but it didn't go anywhere. And so over the course of about 10 months, maybe some layers got stuck together. That's, you know, I guess the best theory, but they tried again and eventually, you know, they did get it deployed. But um, I thought that was kind of uh, an interesting point there. So I guess just, you know, a couple of uses or the initial research on one in one mission or experiment was radiation protection. So what happens when you put something like this in space? How does it respond or how well can it shield you from radiation? Because we're very much used to, you know, hard can type structures. But um, one problem with that is it um, that can cause a kind of scatter. So basically when you have these high energy particles hitting something metallic, it can actually kind of like ricochet um, and you get what is, I guess, essentially secondary radiation. You'd like you get hit by the initial radiation. And then also I think that um, it can kind of like throw off other subatomic nuclei. But this is something completely different because there's no hard metallic surfaces. So basically um, it was very important to get an idea of the radiation levels inside beams. So there were sensors that were put inside the module. And that was, I think, maybe the one thing that was monitored perhaps more than anything else. And the theory is that the higher hydrogen content in the vinyl polymer foam that's in the shell or like, you know, like the structural shell, um, that was expected to reduce levels. And I've read about this for years now, um, that that's the theory that maybe you don't need heavy, thick metal, that maybe you just have something that has a high hydrogen content and that will do a better job at blocking radiation. This experiment maybe did more to confirm or refute that hypothesis. I don't know what the results were, actually. I should have looked them up, but um, I'm guessing they were pretty good. I think that the radiation levels were pretty good, if not maybe even a little bit lower than you would get inside the traditional tin can type structures. I think the main thing to talk about, and we've mentioned this a lot, like over the years, why beam has to remain closed, right? So beam, it's something that the astronauts only go into at this point, if they need to put something in there or get something out because it is used as storage in space. But during the initial two years, you know, they just had to go in once every couple months, uh, not a whole lot. So but they would have to open the hatch. So why does it have to remain closed? And I don't know if there's a better reason than the one that I'm about to say, but apparently this is, I guess, the biggest one, but it seems like that maybe that could have been, you know, resolved by means of some other type of a hatch. But basically it has a hatch which is held in place with four bolts. And so um, this was docked to the common berthing mechanism, which again was on the Harmony module. So the hatch itself is not very easy to get back in place. And during an emergency, it would take time to close. And that's one thing that you don't have. So you had to just keep it closed. And, um, and apparently that was the primary reason why, which totally makes sense to me. But then again, there are parts of station, right, that um, I guess maybe more on the Russian segments that have like hoses that are running through them. And I think we talked about how, you know, how quickly could you close one of those if necessary. Um, but you'd have to take out those ventilation ducts and everything. So I'd never thought about this, but it would be interesting if like, there were, you know, box cutters and or like wire cutters or something specifically placed near those uh, near those hatches so that if ah. you have to do something, you just do the human powered version of a explosive guillotine. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just chop it and close it. Maybe. Yeah. Um, but in this case, it would still take longer, apparently, because you need to put it in place. Um, it doesn't just, you know, swing shut like a standard hatch does. I mean, you could you could close the the ISS side, but really, the right thing to do is to close both hatches. And and, mm. and I mean, the one time that they had to deal with a very real depressurization event on a space station was right Mir, <laughs> and that involved yeah having to basically slice through a bunch of 
cabling and stuff that was running through the uh, you know the hatch to Spectre. Do you know how they? Do you know how they cut it? I think a knife, oh, a handy dandy okay. knife, and they just. He was. Uh, I think the 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 one guy, not the um, the commander, but the other cosmonaut. I think he was the one that basically was in charge of trying to cut his way through all the cables and everything, but like make sure that it wasn't anything uh, vital. I mean, I know we both read Dragonfly, and I know I read it more recently than you, but I, 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 that's my recollection. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to remember. <laughs> was this when Mir got rammed? Yeah, yeah. This was the depressurization of it. Yeah. Because yeah. I'm sure that, yeah, there was, I'm sure there was a hose that was running through there that they also just kind of ripped back through <laughs> wherever <laughs> it came from. Scary incident. But yeah, so yeah, the hatch has to remain closed. So what that means is that you need special ventilation because air still has to be circulated through the module. So it has special ventilation as well. A problem with beam is that keeping the temperature optimal is a hard is hard to do and it can only be done through circulating the air through that module because it doesn't have wall heaters, which is what you would find on the rest of the station. The wall heaters are there to prevent condensation and but that can still build up on the inside of beam. Uh, so how do you resolve this problem? What they have is what's called the IMV, which is the intermodule ventilation system, which is basically these two ducts. There's one on sort of like the starboard side of the hatch, and then there's one on the port, and one is for pumping air into the module, and then one's for getting it out. I can't think of the right term for that. Yeah. Um, there's like a total standard HVAC word, but I can't think of it. Anyway. Oh, um, oh return? Yeah, return. Like it, yeah. And yeah. then what's an HVAC could be vent and return. Vent and return. Okay, yeah. So yeah. one's for vent and one's for return. On the beam side, you would attach a long ventilation duct and that's what you know carries the air throughout the module one issue that they ran into and actually there was an issue when they were installing the IMVs themselves I didn't really go into that but basically they were manufactured by I can't remember the name of the company but the rest of the ones on station were manufactured by Honeywell and there was some compatibility issues and they were having some software problems so first they had to fix that but once that was fixed they also found out that there was actually a flexible coupling that was missing so they couldn't attach uh, the IMV to the ventilation duct this is something that they had known about during the manufacture of of node 3. The coupler was found to be about one inch short, but the module was flown anyway because there were no plans to use node 3. So they figured, you know, this isn't a problem that we're going to have to deal with. Just go ahead and fly it. We're not going to use it anyway. And there were no couplers on board station that could, you know, fit the task um, because try to imagine you have, uh, you have the IMV exit, which is a about, I don't know, looks like a four or five inch diameter tube and then you have the other side which is like the the actual duct and that's even bigger slightly different shape and they don't face each other directly so they're a little bit off axis from one another so how do you get these two things hooked up if you don't have the right part so they did like an old-fashioned apollo 13 style you know dump everything on the table and let's look at what we do have to see if we can you know find something <laughs> that will work here and that's exactly what they did and it you know worked and so what they did was uh, a ground fit team, which is a failure investigation team, uh, they determined that they could use Kynar bags and a Kynar bag. And I had to look this up, but this is what you take air samples with. And I'm guessing that that's exactly what they were going to use them for because they were taking air samples from the beam module. And I assume that they do it throughout station occasionally anyway. So they had these Kynar bags and they just cut off the bottom of the bag and that makes it into a kind of a tube. And then they just joined those two ends. They put band clamps on it and then they put captain tape on it to kind of you know like seal it uh, and mm -hmm. that was their little makeshift coupler 
Uh, and it totally worked. And the idea was that, you know, for just two years, that should be fine. But since Beam has been on orbit for longer than that, they needed a more permanent solution. And um, apparently, Talos Alenia was going to make a new coupler that they might have done. So I couldn't find out if that was the case. And it might have actually been replaced by a different company. But somebody, I think, since then has actually made it like an actual coupler that fits this thing. So it's not being held together by a kind of plastic bag. Would it have been a, a specialized coupler? I thought the old coupler would have worked. So why wouldn't well, no, because flown? it was too well because it was too short. So I guess oh, it was, oh okay. I mean, it seems like a pretty easy modification. Just make it a little bit longer. Yeah, yeah, but that's that's still a new part, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, I got gotcha. you. Yeah. So uh, fan issues. So <laughs> the next problem, uh, you know, like as a result of having to circulate the air through the module, which is a result of having to keep the hatch shut. It seems that like a lot of issues were just because the hatch needed to be kept shut. But I'm assuming that maybe there were other concerns about the viability of this thing, which is why you would want to keep the hatch shut. So maybe it doesn't matter that it couldn't close quickly. They would want to keep it closed anyway. So they were having some fan issues as well. So basically convection heat transfer is the only way that you can keep it beam above the station dew point because if it gets too cold in there, oh, then you'll get oh, condensation. Right. So um, the station dew point is apparently somewhere between 40 and 60 degrees Fahrenheit or 4 and 15 degrees Celsius. Um, at a nominal cabin temperature of 65 degrees or more, a flow of 3.4 cubic meters per minute uh, will maintain the wall temperature at about 12 degrees Celsius. And I had to do a lot of conversion because this was all in Fahrenheit and in feet and inches and stuff. So, but I think I got I got all these numbers right. Now, due to its use as a storage place since 2017, they had to actually increase the ducting. And I guess that's just because you need to get the air around, you know, stuff that was in there. But the flow remained good. So it was still at 3.4 cubic meters per minute. So, you know, that's how much air had been moved, you know, per minute. That's the idea. But an issue was uh, the inlet screen on the IMV. So they had to clean this like every week. And that's just part of their weekly task that they do on station. But what was happening was it was FOD that was actually like, well, it says FOD, but it basically looks exactly like what you'd find in inside your vacuum clearance, that gray, dusty, kind of cobwebby stuff. Quite a lot of it was actually clogging these fan inlets. It's pretty gross looking stuff. It looks, I mean, from if that is what I'm looking at, then that looks exactly like vacuum clear crap. Yeah, skinny clothing fibers. Yeah, gross. I mean, could, uh, of all the things that humans produce out of our meat sacks, it could be a lot worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. Fair point. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and so in August of 2016, which is only a couple months later, the flow got down to 1.8 cubic meters per minute. So that was a huge reduction in the flow rate. Uh, just over the course of a couple months, uh, that's how much of that gunk got you know stuffed up in there. And then in September of the following year, the flow dropped to 1.27 cubic meters per minute. And again, I guess they just weren't cleaning it out often enough. Maybe, I, I mean, I can't imagine this, this is something that, you know, slips by them, but I guess they just weren't predicting how quickly these filters can get clogged. Um, that, you know, that's how dirty perhaps the air on station is, or that's just how much, you know, particulate matter is always flowing around. But anyway, yeah, this clogging um, caused the temperature to drop to as low as 59 degrees Fahrenheit or about 15 degrees Celsius. Um, and that was the lowest point, And that happened during a station maneuver, which was for a Soyuz docking. Um, but otherwise, it was a little bit warmer and it never, you know, developed any condensation. I don't know how bad it would be if that had happened. I imagine it would just, you know, evaporate once they got the temperature back up. But I guess the real danger is if you get condensation and the temperature continues to drop, then it freezes and ice might do who knows what uh, to the interior 
But um, yeah, and so as we all know, in I think it was March of 2020, um, as a result of the pandemic, uh, they say, Bigelow, I believe at that point, filed for bankruptcy or they laid off all their staff actually. And then in December of 2021, they just transferred ownership to NASA. So basically NASA took control of Beam, and but NASA didn't necessarily have the expertise. So they actually awarded $250,000 to another company. Um, and I was not aware of this, which is um, ATA Engineering. Um, and they currently provide the engineering support services for the Beam module. And they were a subcontractor. I don't know exactly what they did, but basically they had the most expertise next to Bigelow. Uh, so they were, you know, like, I guess next in line to take control of the thing and essentially run it until who knows what it might be deorbited or it might go down with station. We don't know, (laughs) but apparently they did some analyses and came to the conclusion that beam could actually remain operational through as late as 2032. So that's really late. So Hmm. getting back to, you know, how viable is uh, this thing, I guess, structurally, it's very sound. Um, I guess that's my take home as far as beam goes. Uh, you don't need to worry about it, you know, falling apart or being torn apart by micrometeoroids. Um, apparently it's just as durable, if not more so than a traditional can. (laughs) So, um, (laughs) I know by traditional can, you mean like can shaped module, right? Not traditional can as in what my Coke comes in. I I heard what my Coke comes in and I was like, okay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Aluminum. I think that makes up some of it. Yeah. Now, if it is deorbited, this is interesting. It will be released by Canadarm2 and it'll be done with zero push. So basically, Canadarm would just grab it, hold it as far towards the earth as it can, and then just let go. And then from there, it just lets orbital mechanics take its course, and it'll slowly drift away and slowly deorbit. That's the idea. Now, that's if you know that ever happens. At this point, I'm guessing it's going to remain part of station for as long as station is a thing. Um, I don't think it's going anywhere. Uh, it seems to have been a huge success, and you know they have stuff in there. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what they're putting in there now, but uh, it's totally a good storage space to keep your space shit so (laughs) but that's beam yeah it's still going and it's funny because like bigelow not so much uh the module outlasted the company itself yeah well thank you david for that recent yet not so recent (laughs) this week's been a history let's say i learned a lot of uh extra stuff so uh ben you have graciously uh because i'm traveling and won't be able to make it next week you graciously decided uh agreed to take uh my Twisif. And so uh, next week, which is the 18th to the 24th of April, do you have a clue for us? I do. Um, next week in 2004, the clue is four crystal balls. Four crystal balls. Okay. If you think you know what event that clue is referencing, you can tweet at us with the hashtag uh, thisweeksf or send us an email. And good luck. Good luck, everybody. All right. So, um, yes, let's go ahead and move on to the upcoming spaceflight events. We got at least, I don't know, three probable launches, maybe mm-hmm. four. <laughs> we'll yeah, three, three we'll probable for within possibility. Yeah. All right. First up, it's finally time. Uh, Juice is about to launch. So Juice is the Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer. Um, it's so cool. It's a, it's an ESA mission that is going to Ganymede, Callisto, uh, Europa, uh, the, the iciest of the moons. 
Uh, very excited for Juice. It is going to be flying atop an Ariane 5 ECA Plus configuration uh, on Thursday, April 13th at 12, 15, and 1 second hours UTC. And then next we have our maybe launch. And so this is one that would be certainly for the record books. Um, this is the orbital flight test of Starship. And so this maiden flight will involve the booster, uh, ending up in the Gulf of Mexico while Starship itself completes what I consider a proper full orbit and would splash around, uh, splash down in Hawaii, essentially, uh, off the coast of Hawaii. And uh, even if that's not a full 360 degrees, that's as far as Yuri Gagarin went pretty much, right? And so I consider it to be mm -hmm. legit for a first flight. <laughs> <laughs> So this uh, nominal window um, is uh, Monday, April 17th from 1200 UTC to 1600 UTC. But, you know, keep your fingers crossed, but don't actually start making travel plans or anything like that. Don't uh, I wouldn't build your day around it. Yeah. And Buy so, snacks, not airline flights. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But super cool to see this possibly happening from... Uh, Boca Chica, Texas. And then after that, on the 18th, we have another SpaceX launch, but this one is a Falcon Heavy. So this is also a kind of a, not just your standard Falcon 9. Uh, and this is launching Viasat 3 Americas. So I guess this is, um, yeah, just another of the Viasat series of satellites. This is going to geostationary transfer orbit. The liftoff time for that is 2336 UTC. So it looks to be an instantaneous launch window launching from Kennedy Space Center from Slick 39A. So yep, watch that one if you like. That will also be cool and is more likely to happen and you get to watch the boost back and all that. Yeah. At least, actually, I'm not sure. I think, is this one? No, they're expanding the side boosters. Yeah, yeah, they're expanding they're, they're, them. They're yeah, yeah. Them. So never mind. And then last, we have a Starlink flight. This is Starlink Group 62 uh, flying on a Falcon 9 Block 5 on Wednesday, April 19th at 1333 hours UTC. And with that, those are your upcoming space flight events. All right. And with that, let's do it with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Chris, a.k.a. Stig Garfield, Gopal, Mike, Delta V, Colin, and Delta V Dan for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit, where Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it. We'll see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.